Welcome to We Will Rise, National Parks and Civil Rights. Close your eyes and imagine a national park. Are you picturing waterfalls and mountains? Or do you think of Dr. King's childhood home, Japanese internment camps, and a school that became a battleground for racial integration? National parks aren't just wilderness. They are spaces of remembrance, founded to preserve the stories of who we are and how we came to be. National parks inspire us to do better, be better, to climb mountains, both physical and figurative. Join park rangers, researchers, authors, and activists as we discuss what liberty and justice for all means on our public lands. Welcome to our first episode. My name is Kat and I'm a park ranger at Freedom Riders National Monument and Birmingham Civil Rights National Monument. Today we are honored to welcome Charles Person and Roy Wood Jr. Charles Person was a Freedom Rider. Freedom Riders rode buses across the South to test Supreme Court rulings declaring segregation unconstitutional in restrooms, bus depots, and waiting areas. Brutal violence in Alabama showed that when it came to integration, the nation was failing. Freedom Riders sat down on these buses in order to stand up for the truest of our nation's ideals. Mr. Person has just published a memoir of his experiences and a call to action for change. Buses are a coming. Roy Wood Jr. is a comedian, best known for his work on The Daily Show. Raised in Birmingham, he has written that Alabama represents to him painful history, new hope, and home. I'll let the two of them take it from here. Uh, well, let me start just on the behalf of all of Black America, brother person, and just tell you thank you. Just a, just a simple thank you. And that's before we even get to the medals that are on your chest um, as a Marine Corps veteran. Just thank you for what you all chose to do um, in, that, in that ride down, you know, down south. Um, I have a million questions. I hope some of these you haven't been asked before, but I, the book, uh, the memoir, pardon me, is it's it's straight up poetry. And the, the thing that I the thing that I really enjoyed about your memoir is that you didn't just go into what happened. And you know, more often than not when we look at a lot of the media that's created around the civil rights movement, I'm talking TV and film primarily, it's, it's, you only have enough time for the what. This is what happened, this is who did it, this is what changed, these are the people, these are the policies. Whereas with your memoir, you were able to really get into the why people chose to do what they did. My first question to you, just out the gate, you're 18 when you decide to become a freedom rider, how did you convince your mama to say yes to, hey mama, I'm going on a racism tour down south, but don't be worried. Well, I didn't quite tell her the whole truth. I just explained to her that I was going to DC for advanced training in nonviolence. Now she knew that I was active in the Atlanta movement that I had been in jail and like most parents, she figured there was not much more that could happen to me. 
and no one realized that uh, what laid in store for the Freedom Riders. But that uh, more or less convinced her to, that I would be okay. The men in the family supported me, and that's what made it possible. But convincing mom, you know, mothers everywhere, they're going to worry. I had never left the South before. Uh, I never left the state of Georgia before. So all mm -hmm. this was new, and at 18, it was, a, it was quite an adventure. Now, the Freedom Riders were comprised of young and old, male and uh, men and women, more importantly, white and black. How much interaction had you had with white allies up until that point before you got to D.C. and met the people that you would be on the bus with? Well, in the Atlanta movement, unfortunately, we had very few whites participate. I think the enemy movement wanted to. Now, there was one uh, uh, white fellow that was in my uh, freshman uh, English class. But other than that, uh, our association, we were really lone wolves operating alone uh, in Atlanta. So it was really encouraging when I got there to meet the, the whites that were involved. It was really surprising. And they really welcomed me on board. And in fact, the Bergmans, uh, Dr. Bergman and his wife, said they were, they were more or less like my parents. They said, we're going to take care of you. And believe it or not, they tried. Let's, 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 let's stay right there for a second with Dr. Bergman. Um, he was one of the people, um, I believe, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, but in the memoir, you talked about how Dr. Bergman said, and this is going back to the why people were choosing to take a stand. Dr. Bergman saw the mistreatment of African-Americans uh, while he served. And it was one of the things that kind of stuck with him. And just that one little annoying thing that just never left his mind. And he decided to act on it. And he saw the Freedom Rides as an opportunity to actively be a part of something that would push the nation forward. What advice do you have, if any, for white people today who they have that same inkling in the back of their mind like Dr. Bergman, but they haven't quite taken that step or went to try and find that program? Um, well, I guess what, what advice would you have for them in deciding to make that step forward? I think the biggest problem that most whites have today is they, they are a product of our educational system. And the biggest problem with that is that we were um, slavery, uh, the Trail of Tears, uh, the uh, Manifest Destiny, the Mexican Wars, they all taught as little modules, they're all separate. Whereas if you connect them together, then all of a sudden you see a picture how we became that country from seed to signing sheet. And once that happens, then they have a new outlook on what our aspirations are and how badly we were treated. In other words, Sometimes he says, well, oh, yeah, well, slavery was this and that. And sometimes the movies glamorize uh, those aspects of slavery or how we were content and happy little pickaninnies. And that was not the case. Mm -hmm. So they need to realize what how life was for blacks, not only in slavery, but during the era of Jim Crow. Once they have a better understanding, then we can have that conversation. And then they can understand that I'm not whining. I'm not begging. I don't want anything more than giving any other American. I want to belong just like you want to belong. I mean, I, we ask for nothing special. We just want to be treated as normal human beings. Uh, a part of the memoir that struck me as you know, very riveting was, was not only the age differential in everyone that was involved in the Freedom Ride, uh, the original Freedom Riders from DC I'm talking about, but also where they all were emotionally you know, in relation, their relationship with the civil rights movement at that particular biomarker in their life and how you at 18 
um, you recognize that, like you clock that immediately. Um, you know, in the memoir, you you describe, okay, I've decided to be a freedom rider, which meant you had to go to Washington D.C. for a training period so that you could be taught, um, let's just say, more in depth nonviolent training and how to how to maintain your stillness around, let's just say, high tense situations with with a lot with a lot of stimuli going on, to say the least. So. In that, in that time, you know, you and all these other strangers, you know, you, you simulate conflicts and, and they were created to test your resolve to remain nonviolent. And in the memoir, you talked about meeting a then 20-year-old John Lewis. And in the book, you described him as this. I smiled, John seethed. John was always serious, always straight-faced, always solemn. For me, the importance of the work was primary but I also felt a sense of adventure. There was no adventure in this for John. For John, this was as serious as life gets. At what point in the Freedom Ride did it stop becoming an adventure for you as well and turn into an actual full focus primary mission objective? I think once we got started, and we started meeting people in various towns and how they open up to us. Um, for example, every night we had to be put up. We had to stay someplace. And we stayed with people and many of them, uh, they didn't have very much, but they gave us the best that they had. And uh, after seeing this now, you gotta realize come from Atlanta and seeing these people and how they were reaching out to us, poor strangers. And they gave us, like I said, the best that they had. Uh, that for me, made this, this journey, it took on a, a more significance. And I, you know, I wanted in some way after the rise to be able to go reach out to these people and thank them because the journey for me would not have been, been possible. Plus also it gave my parents uh, a piece, a sense of, of, of I guess, a sanity because they knew that I was being taken care of even though they didn't know these people. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, was, it was quite an evolution. You know, from the beginning, you know, the training and all that and how things mounted as we went further and further south. The, the thing that I found interesting um, in the training chapter, and, and I'm sorry to just stay on that part of the memoir for right now, but for me, this is the first time I've ever seen that layer of the civil rights movement peeled back. You know, they talk about nonviolence, nonviolence, and we practice nonviolence. Well, if you practice something, that means you have to be trained in it, which means that you all sat and you all figured out ways to yell slurs at each other, sometimes from people who weren't necessarily um, believable when they said it to you because you knew what their heart was. You knew who they really were and what their soul was. So for them to try to recreate um, a situation of racism for you to react to was a little funny, or at least I, I would imagine the moment, at least a little bit off kilter. Tell me about some of the moments on the trips where you all smiled. Well, I think the, the most important thing for us was the evenings. Uh, during the day, while we we're on the bus, even though, say, I may be sitting with a rider, we didn't uh, converse very much. We wanted to be focused, and we want people to have make the appearance that we were just passengers. We just happened to have sit in the same seat. Um, but in the evenings, we always had dinner together, and we discussed what went right that day and what went wrong. And that was also a time when we were given our allowance 
And that was important because one of the most embarrassing things that could have ever happened to us had we gone into a restaurant, ordered food, and they served us, and we didn't have the money to pay. So it was in, it was imperative that uh, you know that we we had funds. Also, I was taught there, and it's been with me all my life, is I always tip generously. That's one of the things because if you get served, be generous in your tipping, and that's been a habit I've had all my life. Uh, you know, adult life is that when I go places, I always tip liberally. Uh, because, you know, it's, it's important. Uh, black people have a, a reputation throughout the world as being poor tippers. Oh, you know, the slightest thing is wrong with the service and we, we retaliate to the server and maybe it's not even the server's fault. There's warm water in my ice water. I'm not <laughs> tipping you. <laughs> You've been there. <laughs> oh, yeah. I used to be a server. I worked at Golden Corral for two years. So I, wow. I have some firsthand experience. Uh, so, in sticking with the, the, the memoir, Buses Are Coming, you not only paint a beautiful picture of the circumstances that led to everyone who made this choice, and of course, we co you cover everything that happens in Anniston and the horrors in Birmingham, and I do want to talk about Birmingham a little later, but I just found this memoir so compelling because of the why, and you actively, during the time that you all were training, you found your pockets, and, and this is something I can kind of relate to because, well, not in the circumstance, you get what I'm trying to say. When you're in the presence of people that you're intimidated by or curious of, you're trying to find these moments within the conversations to slip in the quick thing that you were curious about. And you talked about how you went around as best you could over the course of that training period in DC to find out what drove these people to be a part of this. You knew why you were there, but I want to know why she's there, he's there, she's there. And you spoke with Reverend Cox and Reverend Cox said this, he said, quote, so many others made sacrifices, so I am not a slave. It's my turn to sacrifice on behalf of someone else. We can sacrifice now, Charles, for those we will never know, who will never know of our sacrifice and will never care we did this we can sacrifice. Do you feel the story of the Freedom Riders and what happened there, do you, do, do you know the worth? Like how aware, because you know, in the moment it's not, you, you can always go, this is gonna be a monumental thing that we will be talking about for decades, but. Did you know at the time how monumental this was going to be? As the bus is pulling out of Washington, D.C., did you all know? I don't think that we were aware of the impact. We weren't uh, deluding ourselves that there's just going to be some great uh, revolution and things are going to change. All we hope for is that we could make a difference. If we could highlight to the country that how things really were, how bad they actually were. And I think uh, that has been the story of the Freedom Rise. Even now, there are so many people that have heard the term and they have a vague idea of what the Freedom Rise was about. But I, I, because of the events that happened afterwards and the deaths and things that happened afterwards overshadows uh, the Freedom Rise because it was so early. You know, this was rather the first big campaign uh, after the Montgomery uh, uh, bus boycott. 
and also after the death of Emmett Till. All those things had a very strong impact on all of us who were involved. But we weren't going to say that we we're going to change the world. We didn't have, we weren't savvy enough to think that what we were doing was going to change the world. But it did. There, there's, there's often, you know, conversations about um, where protests are concerned about outside agitators. So I was in Birmingham uh, during the George Floyd uh, moment that we had as a country. And there were a lot of protests. There were a lot of demonstrations. And then there was also this group, this contingency of outside agitators that were coming in and, you know, starting a lot of ruckus and hijacking the narrative. And that's what the media chose to run with more often than not. You spoke of something very interesting in the memoir about how, you know, you all have come through Anniston and the bus has been firebombed and you've, uh, many of you have been beaten within an inch of your life. And you get to Birmingham and you simply need a doctor. And there were black doctors who were declining and understandably so because of the pressure that they were under. They still have to live here when y'all leave. Y'all coming in town and you all, in the eyes of some black people at that time, the Freedom Riders were seen as outside agitators. In the moment, you know, because you go through all the training and all the preparation, how did that feel? You know, when, when you all are in need of, of medical assistance and the only people who can give it to you are black people, but the black people who give it to you are risking literally their entire fiscal existence to help you. And in some cases, maybe risking their own lives. Did, were you all understanding of that rejection? Did it anger you? What, what was that feeling to you yourself be seen as outside agitators when you knew what you were doing was to try to help the greater good? It was, it, at first, it was very disappointing. And uh, you didn't know how to react. But as it was explained to me uh, why the doctors had taken their position, but I think what was, it seemed wherever there was a, a, a door was closed, another one opened. Because what we later found out, the only medical help I received was a nurse in the, in the Reverend Shuttlesworth's congregation. And she did a remarkable job considering uh, that was all the medical help I received. I mean, it's it was sufficient. However, what happened later, that particular wound drained to the base of my skull and I developed a knife, which eventually got to be about the size of my fist. But I, with the treatment mm. that she gave me was the only thing, but it, it got me through for many, many months. And I, you know, I'm always indebted to her. And that's, I guess, one of the disappointments for me is a lot of those wonderful people who assisted us in all kinds of ways is being able to go out and reach out to them and say, thank you, because they, they made a, a big difference. You know, that, that human touch, especially at the time that we were, we were so, we were battered and we were almost bewildered and they have the folks, strangers come to us and they say they understood and they supported us. And I think that's why the rise grew from 13 to over 436 uh, riders because of the empathy, not only towards us, but for all the replacement riders as well. What was 
because um, and and I'm I believe it was Aniston, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I can't remember if this part of memoir happened in Aniston or in Birmingham, but you talked about how I, I'm pretty sure this was Aniston, where everyone had gotten off. They firebombed the bus. Everyone is getting off of the bus, and people are being beaten. And the ambulance arrives, and the ambulance says that we'll only take the white freedom riders to the hospital. Did that create any type of division within your group when you all saw the way that your white colleagues were being treated or was that just dismissed because you knew they were standing tall with you? Well, I think uh, it showed the community and the people that were there, how, uh, how devoted the freedom riders were to each other because uh, when they, they refuse to take the black riders, the white freedom riders, well, if you're not going to take them, well, we're not going either. So which would have created a greater crisis had they not gotten anyone to the hospital. But that defiance of the white freedom riders would brought all us closer together, but also, you know, uh, it kept them as a group together. You know, because after they left uh, the site of the burning bus, that crowd followed them to the hospital and they threatened to burn the hospital down. So yeah, they, these guys had already proven that they would burn up stuff. So, you know, um, if they would run up a bus, surely setting fire to a hospital was no big deal to them. I, I say sometimes, and, and I say this, you know, I say it being playful on stage because, you know, with comedy, you kind of have to be a little silly. But I do think that there is, you know, as a 42-year-old Black man and being raised more in the history of civil rights versus the actual moment of civil rights. There's a different separation. And when I look at the present day racism and tragedies that are, you know, put at the feet, you know, of black people, you know, there is a trauma to that. There is something terrible to watching the news. There is something that is depressing to having to always take that in and never see justice for our slain brothers and sisters. You know, like even with, um, with, the, with the trial that was happening in Minneapolis with uh, Officer Chauvin, well, former Officer Chauvin, I couldn't watch it. And I just, I followed it some, but I could not watch people recounting step by step and moment by moment, it was too much, but I have the luxury of turning off the TV and at least trying to find some sort of escape. You were born in, you were raised in the South, went to college in the South as a Morehouse man. You can't escape a region. I can turn off the TV. You can't escape Atlanta. You can't escape just riding through Birmingham. And they have the Freedom Riders Monument, which just opened this year in Anniston. How do you feel when you go back to these places, it, are you ever able to just exist in the present in the South? Oh, that's a good one. Um, when I, we went through Anniston for the 40th anniversary of the Freedom Rides, I didn't get off the bus. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I had very negative uh, uh, feelings about the place. 10 years later, the 50th I came by, the town had, had changed tremendously. Uh, there was a lot of empathy uh, by uh, ruling officials, uh, the mayor and, and all those people. And, you know, they were reaching out to us and uh, trying to make amends. 
And uh, the Anderson today is a whole lot different from Anderson back in 1961. I, I find it a very warm community. I could live there. Uh, that's the, how much it has changed. Uh, and the same way with Birmingham. When we came back to Birmingham, uh, the people, but see what has made the difference is the black community realizes uh, what ha- the importance of what happened then. And they're reaching out and saying, hey, we're sorry. And this is the new us. And, and that's the, the new us is what we can embrace. And that's why those portions of the South are not don't have the stigma that they once had. And I think what happens, what makes it better is people like you who are born there and you know, you're a younger generation. You had, you're in between that old past and that new future. And I guess that's what gives us all hope is the fact that we realize that things and people do change and we can make a difference is how we relate to one another. And I think that's for me, has been the, the biggest change because I don't feel any anger uh, towards any of those places. In fact, I, I dispensed with anger a long time ago. I have no reason to hate. You know, I, I, you know, I've forgiven all those mainly because we won. You know, if we were still on the, the effects of Jim Crow, I might have a different a- attitude, but because mm-hmm. there are changes, I can be benevolent and say, hey, I can embrace the change and I do. Let's talk about change for a second. Let's talk about the medals on your chest there. You're 18 and you survive something ridiculously traumatic in the Freedom Ride. Three months later, you're at Paris Island training to be a United States Marine. for what that country had shown you it could be three months prior, why make the choice to go and defend it in Vietnam? Well, it was a twofold uh, reasons. One is that my mother knew that I would stay in the movement. She knew that there's no way I was gonna not be involved some way. So she encouraged me. She says, why don't you join the army? Um, and because I hadn't been totally truthful with her from the beginning and after what had happened, I figured I owed it to her. So I did some, I pursued a different route. At the time, the Army was trying to recruit uh, Blacks for the uh, Academy at West Point. Uh, because in those days, the only way you could get into West Point was have a, a congressional appointment. Well, you know, they weren't appointing too many Blacks to West Point, not from the South. <laughs> so I wasn't going to get that. So, um, uh, but it, but the thing is, I took all the tests and all that stuff. And of course, academically, that was never a problem. And in physical, it was no problem. But the, that particular afternoon, the day before I was supposed to do my final to uh, enlist, uh, there was a, an article on the Marine Corps. And I said, well, hey, let's try this. So I went down to the Marine Corps recruiter and he, he was happy. I did extremely well on the test. And, uh, but then he found he couldn't enlist me. Because what had happened when we were arrested in Atlanta, they put our case on a, what they call the dead docket, which meant I couldn't leave the city at all. Uh, so what happened is the recruiter went down there, I guess he told them, so we can get this one out of your hair. So they allowed the recruiter to enlist me. And that's how I enlisted in the wrinkle. But, you know, I come from a community. Uh, we had a lot of veterans in, my, in, in, in Buttermilk Bottom. 
We had a World War One veteran who was uh, disabled. We had Korean War, and of course, my dad and his uh, cousin were World War II veterans. So, uh, you know, in our community, the military didn't have a stigma. In other words, they would say to us, stay in school, get a good education, or join the army, they'll make a man out of you. So that's the kind of environment I grew up in. Plus, my dad was a very proud soldier. In spite of all the crap that he had to put up with, he was in the army. I mean, he endured some stuff that Nothing like I experienced in the, in the Marine Corps, but you know, but I had heard the stories, so I was prepared for all the stuff that could possibly have happened. What's the biggest difference between the two war zones, Vietnam and the Civil Rights Movement? Well, in Vietnam, I had a gun. Touche. Uh, <laughs> Touche. <laughs> uh, you know, I was a peaceful warrior in Vietnam. I, I, my role, I, I think I was destined to do there because I was one of those people who I was not afraid. I was not afraid during the Freedom Rise. And when I got in the Marine Corps and we got in Vietnam, I was cool as a cucumber. Because, you know, I had experienced stuff, like you say, as a nonviolent person, I endured that. And here I was in a situation where I had colleagues say I had guns and all that other stuff. But I also... Um, you know, I'm, I'm serving my country. And when we got to Vietnam, it showed how ill-prepared America was for that war. For example, uh, we, are in, we are landing in a country where the native language is either Vietnamese or French. In our command, we had no one could speak either language. So what did they do? They surrounded up a bunch of us kids who spoke French enough high school and college French, and we became the interpreters for the U.S. Marine Corps in Vietnam. You know, I mean, if you're going so to go if y'all just aren't there on that day, we just not communicating with nobody. Yeah, you know, it's like, duh. You know, and really, like, you know, we were, they were totally, I mean, they didn't know the good guys from the bad guys. But, you know, but like I say, you know, the, the Freedom Rise prepared me for a lot of things in life, but also it prepared me for Vietnam. And I think I survived Vietnam because of what I learned on the Freedom Rise. And it's two more Vietnam. questions. Two more questions and, I, and I'll get you out of here. I know we don't have a lot of time. Um, I feel like there is a disconnect between your generation and the generation that's coming behind me and a little bit of my generation too in terms of the tactics that should be employed for getting rights, the tactics that should be employed in terms of social justice and equality. You know, I've always been of the belief that civil rights in Jim Crow was, there was, I believe that there was much more of a concrete, racism was more concrete and obvious. Hey, stop hitting me in the head. Let me go in that school and get an education, please. Whereas I feel like racism now, there's a lot of policy, there's a lot of, <clears throat> it's not as solid, it's not as clear, it hides, it's a vapor now. And you have to have different tactics for that. And what do you think the young, the young generation and your generation could learn from one another so that there is more of a cohesiveness you know, to the ideologies of how to fight oppression? One of the things that I think the young people need to do, um, if you're going to be a leader, you have to realize that there are dangers inherent in being a leader. And I think a lot of the Black Lives Matter leaders 
or intimidated by the people who threaten them. So in many cases, you don't know who is in charge uh, of, of a Black Lives Matter group in your particular city. And I encourage them, define who you are. Let people know who you are. Let them know what the cause is and why you are fighting. Reason this way you develop allies. A lot of times you say, well, I don't know why they're marching. Why are they doing this? You need to explain, let people know. And so they can realize that, hey, this is for their benefit, it's for all of our benefits. Uh, we need to develop allies. You can't operate in a vacuum. And you can, you know, uh, we all live in a community and everyone can contribute. But if you don't let people know, they're not gonna participate. Uh, I think I love the enthusiasm of the young people. I enjoy the numbers that they're able to turn out. And they also have to realize that you are in control and uh, you are responsible for what happens. We, know, we always had monitors. Uh, also, we had a dress code, you know, and re that's important because, you know, if you saw somebody throwing a Molotov cocktail with a shirt and tie on, you know, well, hey, that's probably one of our people. But in most cases, these people are not, have no dress code, and you, you, can, you can't isolate them. But uh, I think that they've gotten a bad rap. This past summer, most of the violence was not of their doing, not of the people that sponsored them. And but the narrative changed, and a lot of people now think that Black Lives Matter is a, a terrorist group uh, because they haven't gone out and, and corrected a record. And I think that's one of the things they need to. Even now, they need to go out and say, "Hey, this is who we are, and this is how we operate." You spoke about um, in a previous interview that I saw. You, you spoke about the relationship with, with the media that you all were able to forge. Uh, during your era, which helped with the narrative of what you all were out to accomplish when you were at these protests. How much does media play a role in the misrepresentation of Black Lives Matter's intentions? It's separate and apart from what you're saying in regards to them needing to, you know, have a more cohesive, a more organized, cohesive structure. Because um, I, sometimes I feel like, well, if the story had been covered differently, then maybe that would have helped as well. Um, tell me, I'll get you out of here on this question. So I tried to take my mama to see Selma, Oscar winning film. And she declined at the time. She eventually watched it with me at the house once it came out on HBO or whatever. But my mother said something to me that I didn't understand until I saw the Derek Chauvin trial. She said, I don't need to see a movie about it. I lived it. Do you watch any of the civil rights films that come out from time to time? Do you partake in any of the films that speak to things from your era? It was, it took me a while to get to that point. At first I could not watch it, but I have kids. So, uh, you know, you've got to be able to sit there and talk with them. And once I came out and let them know that I was involved because for, I was married uh, to my wife, Joetta for 10 years before we even, she even knew I was a freedom rider. It's just not something that comes up, but after a trip to Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, we saw there and uh, a reporter was yeah, there. Yeah, a piece of the bus there in the uh, exhibit. And, yeah. it, and so we were able to, after that, we started talking about it within the family. And then I started getting invitations to talk to groups and stuff, but it was uh, very painful. I mean, I, even now though, I, I cry, I break up. A lot of times, it, you know, the, the, I have flashbacks. And the thing is, none of us, or very few of us, receive any psychological training, I mean, after the events. 
So we never was, you know, it always, it happened and we went on with our lives. And like for me, uh, even now, sometimes I'm in interviews and if I'm not prepared for a question, it'll, I'll, I'll shut down. My system will shut down. I'll break down in tears. Um, so it's, it's a lot of it like it's still now. I had an interview during Black History Month for a school and we had a full hours continuous with this group. And at the end of the day, I was, I, I, I just couldn't respond because I'm telling them this story, but I'm reliving it each moment. And it just really got to me. And I said, I'll never do that again, uh, knowingly, because I know that uh, the system just can only take so much. And the kids had such good questions and they would take me back and I could see myself in Birmingham and I could see these guys and I could see, it's not so much what they said or what they called, it's how their faces were contorted with hate. And you wonder how can someone who has never seen me hate me so much or my people? You know, it's, it's I mean, your mind sort of trying to rationalize what's happening and there's no rationalization to an illogical situation. Well, the memoir is Buses Are a Coming. And I'm gonna end one more time on Reverend Cox's quote. So many others made sacrifices, so I am not a slave. It's my turn to sacrifice on behalf of someone else. We can sacrifice now, Charles, for those we will never know, who will never know of our sacrifice and will never care we did this. Tell you right now, we care, this nation cares, Black America cares. Charles Person, thank you so much for the honor of just sitting and talking with you about this memoir. It's so meaningful. And I hope to get down to Aniston. Um, I got to get me about, I, you know, I'm going to take all the vaccines. So once I get all three vaccines in my system, I'm going to be out the door and I'm going to be down to Aniston and I'm going to visit the Freedom Riders National Monument. Well, thanks for caring. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, brother. This is We Will Rise, National Parks and Civil Rights. Thanks to the Salters for use of their song, Turn Me Round. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our series. Until next time. Keep on walking, keep on talking, marching up to freedom land.